Welcome to Working the Word with Jonathan Vorse. Join us now for service already in progress at Lakewood Church of God. We're going to be talking tonight about uh, moving from glory to glory. Glory to glory. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We talked about four places that the Bible says that God dwelled or dwells. And tonight we are going to continue... Uh, talking about that. Just as a real quick recap here tonight, I want to mention to you uh, that last week we talked about how that, how that God created man to be the house for him to dwell in. We talked about how that he was a three-part house, how that he was body, soul, and spirit, and how that the body allows access to the physical world, the spirit allows access to the emotional, or the soul allows access to the emotional world, and the spirit allows access to the spiritual world. We talked about Adam's sin, how that because of Adam's sin, God had to put together a plan of redemption. We also talked about how that because of that, suffering was introduced into the human race. The second place that we talked about that God dwelled was the temple, the Old Testament temple, which was God's outward visible description of His desire. God's outward visible description of His desire. It was made of three rooms, signifying the triune God, but it was also made of three rooms, the outer court, the inner court, and the innermost court. We've seen how that through idolatry and sin, Israel was desecrated, desecrated and defiled that temple and how that, that it continued, that, that people began to uh, do idol worship and things like that in the temple. So the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. because it was unfit to be inhabited by God anymore and God couldn't use it anymore. So we talked about that. Now today, I want to talk about the third place. I want to begin talking about the third place that the Bible says that God dwelled. And that third place is the perfect house. And that third place is Jesus. It's Jesus. Come on, somebody look at your neighbor and say... God dwelled in Jesus. He dwelled in Jesus. Now, in John chapter 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so we see that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now then we go to verse number 14 of John chapter 1, and the Scripture says this, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see that this is indeed the perfect house for God to dwell in. Jesus was the perfect house. Now, in John chapter 2 and verse 19, Jesus called His body a temple. He called His body a temple. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, uh, the house was indwelled by the Spirit of God. In fact, God was there incarnate inside of Him. One place in the Scripture, in the book of Isaiah, through a prophecy, the Bible said that when He comes, you would call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? And so we see that God dwelled inside of Jesus. So the design of this temple was sinless. 
The design of this temple was perfect. This was Jesus. This was Jesus. Well, unfortunately, this temple became desecrated like no other temple had ever been desecrated. And it wasn't because of his own doing. It was because of the sin of humanity. Literally, according to Isaiah chapter 53, literally all of the sins of humanity were placed upon Jesus. When Jesus was hanging there on the cross and he was beaten to smithereens and and he was probably squirming around. The Bible said that he cried and so he was crying and there were tears and there was pain and there was open wounds and, and all of these types of things. Then the Bible says that God eventually turned his face from Jesus and Jesus felt loneliness. He felt the abandonment of God. So God was not abandoning Jesus. God was turning from sin. Because God will not look upon sin. I've often said it like this. God hates sin, but the sinner he loves. God hates sin, but the sinner he loves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, the Bible says this, For he has made him to be sin for us, him who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin for us. The reason he had to make him to be sin for us was because there was no sin in him. And then he goes on and he says, He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God had to make us righteous because just like there was no sin in in God or in Jesus, there was no righteousness in us. You see what I'm saying? And so God had to make him sin to swap out his righteousness for our sin And what happened was when the righteousness of God hit humanity, then it eradicated sin and then God turns around and makes Jesus righteous again when He raises Him from the dead, sits Him upon heavenly places, in His place upon heavenly places. And what happens is when the righteousness of God shows up, then sin flees. And so that's righteousness. He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin that we might be made, those of us who did not know righteousness, that we might be made something we were not familiar with, something that we did not know, that we might be made the righteousness of God. And righteousness is not just being in right standing with God. Listen to me very closely. Righteousness is not just being in right standing with God. Righteousness is the right standing of God. Did you hear me? I'm not playing on words. It means totally, two totally different things. Righteousness is the right standing of God. God is always right. How can He not lie? Because if He he says the grass is blue, it immediately turns blue. (laughs) So, and, and, and that's one example. Now, bring that into where we live. If God says you're whole, you're immediately whole. If God says you're forgiven, 
You're immediately forgiven. Why? Because righteousness is the right standing of God. That means wherever God's presence is, He, bring, he makes things right. Righteousness. Okay? So if God speaks in, in, and says over you that I will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west and remember it against you no more if you'll do da-da-da-da-da. When you do da-da-da-da-da, it'll happen. It has to happen. There is no choice for it to not happen because God said it and God is always right. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God inside of you. That's why when God speaks over your life, your family might say, well, I'm going to have to think about that. God don't care if they think about it or not. He already spoke it. He already said it. They may not understand the life that we live because they're living in the realm of reason and we're living in the realm of revelation. One is carnal and the other is spiritual. Is that making sense? So here's what we need to do. We need to say, okay, Lord, because of Jesus who died on Calvary, I am going to receive everything that the Word of God says that I can have that Calvary paid for. And I'm going to receive it. And when you do that, you come into covenant with God and the righteousness of God. God made you to be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The righteousness of God will make that happen for you. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 24. And I've got this in the Amplified. I like it better in the Amplified. I mean, I, I like the King James Version, but the Amplified just amplifies it. <laughs> okay. He personally bore our sins in his own body on the tree as on an altar and offered himself on it that we might die or cease to exist to sin and live to righteousness. Did you see that? Through the desecration that Jesus went through on the cross of Calvary, through the sacrifice that he allowed himself to be, through offering himself up as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, through doing that, he caused the power of sin over our life to cease to exist. Therefore, sin can no longer reign in my body to cause me to fulfill it in the lust thereof because I no longer live unto sin but I live unto righteousness. My sin has been replaced by God's righteousness. And then he goes on and he just tosses this in here. He said, by his stripes you were healed. Or by his stripes you have been healed. So on the cross Jesus was abandoned by the Father. About the ninth hour he cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wanted to share with you what it would do for you, what Calvary would do for you before I kind of took you through some of these steps. Okay, Matthew 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The firstborn son of God. He was the only begotten son of God, but the Bible now says that there are many begotten sons of God. But he was the firstborn or the first son, firstborn son of God. 
Uh, and the Bible said he took our sin that that sin would become the object of the Father's wrath and God judged, listen to me, God judged Jesus in my place. He judged Jesus in your place. Everything that we had coming to us because of our sin, Jesus got. He took the blunt of it. Touch your neighbor and say, He loves you. He loves you. I'll never forget. I was, oh, I, I don't know. Jeremiah was about two or three. I was standing in our yard in Winchester, Kentucky. Somehow, I don't know how it happened. Oh, yes, wait a minute. I was across the street and Jeremiah was in our yard. That's what happened. And there was a busy street there. And I had went across the street to talk to somebody about a motorcycle. They hollered at me, one of our neighbors, and I was selling my gold wing. And, and they wanted to know what I wanted for it. And so I went over there to talk to them about it. Well, Jeremiah was outside. Somehow he had come outside while I was across the street. And he saw me over there across the street. And he just took a beeline for his daddy. When you're three years old, you don't think about roads. You don't think about oncoming cars. You don't think about anything. I saw him. I saw a car coming. And that car was booking it, buddy. I mean, maybe 50 mile an hour. It was booking it. But Jeremiah was booking it too. And there was going to be a collision. And I took off running knowing I was going to get hit by that car. I knew it. I knew it. And while I was running, I hollered, Jeremiah, stop. And when I hollered that, he just stopped. And as soon as I saw him stop, I hit the brakes and slid partially into the road and the car got around me. I was going to die to save my son. And I completely remember how that, it didn't matter to me. It didn't matter at all. Why? Because I love him that much. He's my son. And I was going to take what that car was going to dish out to him. I was going to run out in front of that car and push him out of the way and take the hit. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what he did for us. That The, the, the sin, all of the things that all, all, all of the missing the mark, the willful transgressions against the, the, the law of God, which is the definition of sin, all of those things, we had judgment coming. And it was coming at 50 mile an hour. It was coming at 100 mile an hour. And it was ready to run us over. And what God did, He looked at Jesus and said, I want them to be a worshiper. I want them to be my family. And this is going to require a sacrifice in order to save the human race. And Jesus threw Himself in front of that car. And he took the hit so that you and I could be saved. Jesus was left alone and desolate. Go, go to uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we'll start in verse number 31. I want, you to, I want us to read this. Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse number 31. What shall we say 
to these things, if God be for us, who can be against us? If God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God's elect is his church. It is God that justifieth. Who is he that contemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, I want you to go back here for just a moment. The Bible said, who shall lay anything to the, to, um, the charge of God's elect? In other words, who is going to be able to accuse the church? And then it goes on and it says it's God that justified the church. It's God that justifies the church. The church is the ecclesia. In the Greek word that means the assembly of called out ones. The Bible says we have been called by God. We've been called out. We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that He would show forth the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And the Bible said who will accuse them? It's God that justifies. And then it goes on and, and it's, it's talking about how that uh, who is he that condemns? It's Christ that died. In other words, he took our condemnation. He took it all. He took our condemnation. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And then verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress... Or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Now, did it say what shall separate us? No, it said who shall. So you know what that means? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not a person that brings me tribulation. Not a person that brings me distress. Not a person that tries to persecute me or tries to starve me out. Not a person that tries to steal from me and take away my clothes or bring peril or even unsheath the sword against me. It didn't say what shall, it said who shall. Who shall? How many of you know that the enemy uses people to fight God's church? The Bible goes on and it says, As it is written, for thy sake we're killed all the day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter, talking about the battle. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And then I, one of my favorite scriptures, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like the first man, Adam, that was destroyed from sin, the second man, Adam, Jesus, was destroyed because of sin. But God redeemed us through it. Now, the last place that I want to talk to you about where, where God dwells. So we've talked about that God dwelled originally in man. Then we talked about God dwelling in temples. Now we talked about how that God dwelled in Jesus. Now... And this is where I've been trying to get to from the time I started this. Where does God dwell now? He dwells in the church. God dwells in the church. The goal of God has finally been achieved. He wants to set up His residence in 
this organism called the church. This is where the pattern changes. What do you mean by that, Pastor? God stopped moving. He stopped moving. I'm not talking about as in moving by His Spirit. I'm talking about He quit changing residences. He said, you know what? This is what I've been trying to do all along. I've been trying to set up a scenario where I could actually live inside of my creation and have fellowship with them and them worship me and me bless them. And so the pattern changes here. He's taken up residence in a permanent dwelling and that dwelling is you. You know, we have a little joke from Kentucky where I'm from. It says, you know you're from eastern Kentucky if your family gets a new home and you have to go help them take the wheels off of it. I mean, that's our little joke. Well, listen, he took the wheels off. He's putting down footers. He's got a foundation. It's there. It's there. He's living inside of the church now. Now, so how does this happen? When you get saved, God moves in. It's simple. It's not hard to understand. When you get saved, God moves in. Well, yeah, but you don't know what I'm into. When you get saved, God moves in. God doesn't move into perfect people. A perfect God moves into messed up people and fixes them. Amen? Amen? When you get saved, God moves in. I'll pray the Father. How does He do that? Through the person and the work of Holy Spirit. John chapter 14 and verse 16, the Bible says, I'll pray the Father that He'll give you another comforter, that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world has not seen, because you see Him, not need to know Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and shall be in you. So that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is is to be the welcoming committee for the presence of God. Hallelujah. And so He moves inside of us. And when we, begin, when we become filled with the baptism of Holy Spirit, you notice I have a hard time saying the Holy Spirit because I believe He's a Him. Okay? When we become baptized with Holy Spirit, then we receive the framework for the anointing. Now listen very closely. Okay? What do you mean by the framework of the anointing? How many know what windows are? Windows. I'm talking about computer windows. Like Windows 10, Windows 8, Windows 10. Okay. That's the framework that your operating system works in. When you become baptized with Holy Spirit, then that's the framework for the anointing. That's the framework for the gifts of God. That's the framework for the fruit of the Spirit. So what happens is you give your life to Christ You ask Him to fill you with baptism with the Holy Spirit, which baptism and filling are two different things. You ask Him to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, totally submerge you, basically asking Him for the framework for His anointing and His blessing upon your life. And when He fills you and and then baptizes you with the Holy Spirit, then you are positioned for Him to start downloading His files into your life. You think it? Think about that. So what does he do? He says, okay, 
Now, the fruit of the Spirit is love, boom, joy, boom, peace, boom, long-suffering, boom, gentleness, boom, meekness, boom, quietness, boom, <laughs> whatever. You see? And so, all of a sudden, you've got these, these fruit of the Spirit over here, and the Bible doesn't call them the fruits of the Spirit. The Bible calls them the fruit of the Spirit. Singular. If you have one, you have them all. Now, I've got things on my Mac that I don't even know is there. You know why? Because I don't know how to access them. And if I knew how to access them, I wouldn't know what to do with them. Okay? That's why it's so important for you and I to sit under Spirit-led and Spirit-inspired teaching because we can know that it's there, but the knowledge that it's there doesn't mean we know how to access it or if we can access it, even how to use it. And that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is to lead, to teach, and to guide into all truth and to magnify and uplift Jesus. So He becomes our Spirit-inspired teacher. He teaches us through the Word. He teaches us through, through Holy Spirit-inspired teachers. He teaches us through relationship. He teaches us through fellowship. He teaches us however He can teach us. So you've got the fruit of the Spirit. And then what about the gifts of the Spirit? Some people call them the nine gifts of the Spirit. They, they divide them up, three, three, three. I like to say two, five, two, because they work better that way. But let me say this, there's more than nine. In fact, in the same passage of Scripture, the Bible talks about the gifts, the operations, the manifestations, and the administrations of the Spirit of God. Why do we just focus on those nine gifts that we see right there? In the, and then when we go through the Scripture and we go to the next chapter, we find out that every single one of them work by love anyway. So you've got these gifts of the Spirit that are once again connecting back to the fruit of the Spirit. And you've got to have the framework to be able to house the fruit of the Spirit so the gifts can work. And you've got to have the framework to house the gifts of the Spirit so the fruits are there. Why do we need the Holy Ghost? I told Dr. John, I've been talking to him for two or three, two or three weeks, and I told him, I said, I'm getting ready to write another book, Dr. John. I said, you want to have some work editing again? He said, what's that? I said, it's going to be on why the Holy Ghost. So I've been studying this a little bit again. That's the difference between us and early uh, people that had relationships with the Lord. Listen, Abraham was the friend of God. You are a son of God. If God will do for Abraham what he did for him for a friend, what will he do for a son? Think about that. Okay, now let's continue on. It's good stuff. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Which is where? In you. Touch your neighbor and say, hey, Holy Ghost. 
which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? But I want things my way. No such thing anymore. You're born again. It's God's way or the highway. Think about it. Think. Look here, look here. You're not your own, for you are bought with a price. What was that price? The blood of Jesus. You're bought with a price. So it goes on and it says, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So you're not your own, you're God's. You're God's property. Devil can't mess with you when you realize who you are. You're God's property. Son of God. Heir of God. Join heir with Jesus Christ. You carry the family name slash authority. Name means authority. You carry the family authority. Because you're a son of God. Because you were made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Because you are part of the church, the assembly of called out ones. Because you are the body of Christ, fitly joined together. Because Christ, the Bible said, is the head of the church. And the church is the body of Christ. And Christ is God's, therefore we are God's. And because we are God's, He says, okay, that's where I'll deposit my spirit. Boom. And all of a sudden, when the Spirit of God comes inside of you, you are no longer your own. You're God's. Don't you ever... Oh, let me me preach a little bit right here. Don't you ever let anybody tell you that you are a no good, down, beaten down nobody. You are God's property. And God doesn't make junk. (laughs) You are God. You belong to... But you don't understand where I've been. You don't understand what I've done. All of that has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. You were... He became sin so that you could become... be, Be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. Listen, I could be good for the rest of my life. And it's still not enough to get me into heaven. But you apply what Jesus did on Calvary to my life. And that's the reason I'm there. It's called grace. It's called the grace of God. It's called the cleansing power of the blood. Now, you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. So we're the temple of God. Now, there are two words translated temple in the New Testament. The first one is leron, L-E-R-O-N. And that means the entire temple precinct or the temple mount. Okay? So we could say it like this. We are the temple precinct of God. That's why God spoke to Caleb and said, and Joshua and said, wherever the sole of your feet is, I'll give it to you. And Caleb walked all over that mountain saying, I want this mountain, I want this mountain, I want this mountain. And God gave him the mountain. 
because the precinct of God was with him. Now listen. <laughs> okay. The second one is naos, which is the holy place or the sacred dwelling place of God. You carry the sacred dwelling place of God with you every single day, everywhere that you go, because you're the dwelling place of God. You're the temple of God. You're the temple of God. Well, then how come so many bad things happen to me? How come there's so many things that go wrong? How come there's so many, all of these kind of things? Because no one has ever taught us how to access and work the fire. The Bible said, my people are destroyed for what? A lack of knowledge. The Bible said that we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. So we're supposed to be doers of the word. So in order to know what to do, we have to gain the knowledge of it. So that's why those of you that come on Wednesday night, you get a lot deeper than what, what we do on Sunday morning because I have to preach and teach where the crowd is on Sunday morning. But when you come here on Wednesday night, you are learning the practical application of the Scripture. You're learning how to apply it to your heart and to your life. And let me tell you something. I don't, I don't mean to make you feel bad, but I don't have enough years left to teach you everything that you need to know out of the Scripture. That's why it's important for you to study. That's why it's important for you to let Holy Spirit teach you on a daily basis. That's why it's important for you to allow God to drop those deposits inside of you because God's trying to access your files. God's trying to activate you. God's trying to do something for your good and His glory. But you're going to have to let Him do it. And the way that you do it is through the Holy Spirit. So there's two words translated temple. We're the temple of God. We're the dwelling place of God. So the word Leron is the entire temple precinct or the temple mount. And the word Naos is the holy place or the sacred dwelling place of God, which when you put this together, it means as Christians, we are literally the living, breathing temple or the dwelling place for God's government and authority on the earth. Think about it. We are God's dwelling place for God's government and God's authority upon the earth. If the wrong person gets elected, it's because the church let it happen. Come on. If there's chaos in our community, it's because the church let it happen. How did they let it happen? I would never allow anything like that, Pastor. I just don't understand why all of this... We let it happen because we failed to allow ourselves to become educated how to access what heaven offers for what our community needs. That's why it's important for us to say, God, what is your vision for this community? What is your plans for this community? God, what do you want to do right here in Pasco County, which is where we live, so we're talking about our life. God, what do you want to do? And when we get lined up with what God wants to do, then we don't try to reinvent the wheel. We just go into spiritual training and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to reveal to us the things that we need to know and the how-to to do it. And then we start seeing the kingdom of God come alive on the earth and we start experiencing God's glory and God's power because we as the church represent God's government and God's authority in the earth. 
Hallelujah. We do, we do. In Pasco County, we're God's government and God's authority. You are God's government and God's authority. Don't take this wrong. What are you doing with all of that? What are you doing with all that? Some people say, why are you so involved in politics? Why do you go pray for all these politicians? Why do you go to all these dinners and all of these things, do all of these invocations? Because I think if the enemy, and not just the enemy, but I think if there are power structures around that God needs to be represented. And I have literally seen, I don't mean this in a braggadocious way, but I have literally seen God turn the tide at different times in conversations just because of the presence of a man of God in the room. Hmm? The house. Now, if you see, man was desecrated, right? Through sin. The temple was desecrated through idolatry. Jesus was desecrated and destroyed because of man's sin. This house, the church, cannot be desecrated. That's the difference. Why? Because it's sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, here's where we're different between our friends that are of the opinion that eternal security is, you know, you can give your life to Christ and then do whatever you want to do and all that. No, 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 no. The church, listen to me. The church, the assembly of called out ones, the house that God dwells in, of which we are part of, we are the body, is eternally secure. But the individual parts... We're part of the church. The individual parts of the church can jump out of God's hand. So let me say it like this. How, do you, how come you say that, Pastor? Because Jesus told Peter, he said, You're Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell itself cannot prevail against it. So God's structure that he placed in the earth today, which is called the church, to house His power, His government, His authority, to receive His blessing, to live in His favor, to experience abundance and healing. All of that is secure forever. Now, I don't know why I wouldn't want to continue to be a part of that. Individual believers make up the church. Individual believers can walk away from the Lord, but the Lord of the church will never walk away from them. All right, now, i got to try to pull this in here. <laughs> Ooh, this is such good stuff. Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13 teaches us that Christ conquered our sins and blotted them out. Therefore, sin is no longer credited to us. Rather, righteousness is imputed or put to us. So, it can't be desecrated and it also cannot be desolate. This is my last point. This house, the church, the assembly of called out ones can never be left desolate. Why? Because God can no longer, apart from His church, 
nor would he if he could. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. The saying is sure and worthy of confidence. If we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny and disown and reject him, he will also deny and disown and reject us. There you go. That's for my eternally secure brothers and sisters. Verse 13. If we're faithless, do not believe and are untrue to him. He remains true, faithful to his word and his righteous character for he cannot deny himself. What's this saying? Verse 13 is telling us that there's always a path back to God. Always a path back to God. Hebrews 10, 26. People like to quote this scripture. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the, of the truth, there remaineth therefore now no more sacrifice for sin. There are people today that want you to believe that if you've given your life to Christ and you walk away from the Lord that you are lost forever. What this scripture is saying is totally opposite of that. Here is what it's saying. It's saying that Jesus is the only sacrifice that God will accept to eradicate sin. It says here, if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains therefore now no more sacrifice for sin. In other words, you're going to have to go back and do it the way you did it to begin with. Jesus is the only way. He's the only truth and He is the only life. Ephesians 4.30, speaking of the church, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. This is talking about the church. Paul was writing to the entire Ephesian church, Ephesian church, and letting them know that God's church or the assembly of called out ones was sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. Holy Spirit will help us get through. So the church can never be destroyed. It can never be left desolate. It can never be desecrated. I have just a few little sayings here that I wrote down. Just, you know, when I'm studying, sometimes I'll just, things will come to me and I'll just write them down. And I incorporate them into different places uh, in, in the message as I'm putting it together. But sometimes I have some leftover parts. So these are some of the leftover parts. Y'all want to hear them? All right, here we go. Salvation isn't about getting man into heaven. It's about getting God into man. Isn't that good? Salvation is about making dead men live again. It's about living for God and doing His will as opposed to the will of the world and of the devil. Sanctification, when Adam sinned, he died immediately in the spirit, progressively in the soul, and ultimately in the body. That's kind of a boom. You want to hear it again? When Adam sinned, he died immediately in the spirit, progressively in the soul, which is the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotion, and ultimately in the body. Therefore, we are justified at the instant of salvation by the spirit, sanctified progressively in the soul, and glorified ultimately in the body. That'll flat preach. I don't have time to do it. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, and flight, I'm convinced and sure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue until the day of Jesus Christ, right up to the time of his return, developing that good work and perfecting and bringing it to full completion in you. Woo! <laughs> God isn't finished with us yet. We aren't perfect, but he likes a fixer-upper. 
Therefore, he is always rebuilding, remaking, and remodeling into the image of Jesus. Spiritually, God lives in you. Therefore, every action in life should reflect this, this truth. You are God's temple, and because of this truth, every day is a holy day, and every place is a holy place, not just Sunday. Service. Do not insult God by saying that He cannot use you. He made you. Come on. If God can't use me, oh yeah. Yes. He lives in you and as you continually yield to Him and constantly depend on Him, He will use you, His temple, for your good and His glory. Okay. All right. This help you tonight? It's good stuff, isn't it? My goodness. All right. Punch your neighbor. Easy. Boom. And say, you're the church. What up, church? Say, what up, church? All right. Let's stand. Come on. Let's stand. Thank you for joining us on Working the Word. For more information, go to our website at www.suncoast4, and that's the number 4jesus.tv. You may also write us at 12637 Pony Lane, Hudson, Florida, 34669. Or you may call us at 727-856-1770. Our office hours are Monday through Wednesday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Thursdays, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. And remember, the Word will work if you work the Word.